If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter one. We are in week six of our series entitled From the Mountain Peak, where we've just been going almost verse by verse through the book of Ephesians, uh, looking specifically at chapter one. And uh, what's happening in this chapter is Paul takes us on our journey up the mountain and he just lays out for us the glory of our salvation. He just lays out for us what redemption in Christ looks like. And it's been a very beautiful and glorious picture. And so we are continuing today in Ephesians chapter one, verses seven and eight. And we're meditating on this very simple truth, which is the grace of God. And so if you are able, please stand with me as your act of worship. We read God's word and we receive God's word as it is given to us, a great gift, life-giving and instructive to us. Ephesians chapter one, verses seven and eight. Here now the reading of God's word. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. Join me in prayer once more as we beseech the Lord. Father in heaven, give to us listening ears. And Spirit of God, take your word and pierce it into our hearts. Jesus, be ever fixed on our minds so that as we behold you, we will be drawn to worship. And being drawn to worship by your glory and grace, we would be transformed as your people. Do this for your glory's sake. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Last week, I put on my Bob the Builder hat. Uh, Not literally because it was Halloween, but uh, because Eunice and I were installing uh, shelves in our bathroom. And uh, so I watched a few YouTube videos. I measured everything precisely. I took out a level to ensure the lines were straight. And then I went to the difficult task of drilling and installing. And the shelves went up and they looked beautiful, uh, HGTV worthy um, for about 10 seconds. And then we looked at them and realized that they seemed kind of like they were sloping to the right. But I knew our eyes couldn't be trusted. So then I took the level and I set it right on the shelf. And sure enough, the level is showing that the shelf was kind of leading to the right. But that science, that can't be trusted. And so I took a pen and I set it right on the shelf. I set it on the left side and slowly to my heart's dismay, I saw it rolling down <laughs> into the right. Clearly the shelf was angled improperly. And the pen rolled down because things will always roll down. Things will never roll up. And I mention that because our hearts are at an incline, right? Sin has so distorted our hearts that when our heart is left to itself, it will naturally gravitate not toward grace, but it will naturally gravitate toward works. Grace, in fact, is at the top of the incline, and it will go against gravity for our hearts to gravitate toward grace. Our hearts will naturally gravitate toward works in the way that we relate to God, in the way we think about God. And yet, Grace is that which sets Christianity apart from every other religion. The gospel is a message of God's grace, his unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. And as much as we like the idea of grace, it's very hard to believe in grace, to live in grace, to receive grace, and to show grace. So often we resort to our own works. We want to contribute something to our salvation. We want to earn 
our salvation. And Apostle Paul here comes and he clarifies the nature of grace for us. And so as we look at verses 7 and 8, here's our simple gospel truth, our one-sentence summary of the sermon. God is both rich in grace and generous with grace to all who go to him. God is both rich in grace and he is generous with grace to all who go to him. Now, this may be a message that is so uh, simple, and you've heard this over and over and over again. And yet, we need to hear it once more. Imagine a man who is dying of thirst and found in the desert. He is rescued and recovered, taken to the hospital and given water to drink. In that moment, he is saved. But let me ask you, friends, the next day when he wakes up, does he still not need water to live? The water not only saves him, but it sustains him. The grace of God not only saves us, it gets us in the door of the kingdom, but it sustains us for our everyday. And so we need to hear the message of God's grace every day. And so let's get started as we look at this passage. In verse 7, Paul highlights two things we receive when we're united to Jesus. He writes, in him, we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now he begins in him, that means through our union with Jesus, we receive two things, redemption and forgiveness. Now, you know, on the one hand, we say redemption, forgiveness, oh, it's all kind of the same thing. We interchangeably use them, but they actually refer to different things. Forgiveness in the Bible refers to releasing a person out of captivity or paying a ransom to set them free from slavery. That's what redemption is. And so the climactic event of redemption in the Old Testament, most likely that which Paul has in mind, is the redemption of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And if you remember in that book, the book of Exodus, right before Israel is led out of Egypt, before they are redeemed out of slavery by Moses, God sends a tenth and final plague. And if you remember, Pharaoh is very intent on not letting God's people go. He hardens his heart, it says. And yet, in this, after this tenth and final plague, that is uh, what causes, it triggers Pharaoh to let Israel go. And that tenth and final plague is that God promises. He says, I'm going to strike down the firstborn in all the land. Not just the firstborn of the Egyptians, but every firstborn. But Israel has provided a way out of it. God sets up the conditions. They're very simple. He says, if you take a lamb and you sacrifice it, then you take its blood and you smear it over the doorpost. Then I promise you that I will pass over your home. And the whole symbol of what's happening here is that Israel's redemption required the shedding of blood. But it was not to be Israel's blood that was shed, but a substitute. Why? Why would that blood need to be shed and then smeared over? Because it was a sign. It was an indication that when God came that night to make good on his promise of the 10th and final plague, that he, if he came to your home and he saw blood spread over your doorpost, he knew that death has already occurred here. A sacrifice has already been made. Payment has already been made. A substitute has already died and he would pass over. If you've ever gone grocery shopping and you buy something big like a pack of water or a pack of uh, instant ramen and you don't want to take it out of your cart, so they leave it in the cart, they scan it. But in order to prove that you've actually bought it and paid for it, what do they do? They give you like a bright pink or orange sticker, right? And they, they uh, put it right on that box and it says, paid. And the whole point of that is so that as you leave the store, nobody's going to stop you. Nobody's going to look at you suspiciously because there's the mark. It's been paid for. 
Now, whenever, I don't know about you, but whenever, you know, I pay for something and they don't give me that sticker, I get really nervous inside. I'm like, where's the, you know, security cameras? And, you know, I try not to act so nonchalantly, like naturally, like everything's cool. Everything's cool. And I'm going out even though I don't have the sticker. Because the sticker provides the boldness. It gives the boldness because it displays to the world, this has been paid for. For Israel, the blood of the lamb did exactly that. A substitute has already died in the place of the firstborn. God, you can pass over this home. Now, that whole story of the Exodus, which I believe Paul has in mind because he is a Jew who knew the scriptures well, that whole story actually pointed to something God would eventually come and do. And it was a story that would ultimately be fulfilled in the coming and the work of Jesus. That God was showing his people already that he planned to send the sacrificial lamb who would die as your substitute and his blood would be shed in order to secure your redemption. And all of that meant that the price had been paid so that you, God's people who now receive that by faith, don't have to pay it. But consider the price that was paid. Often uh, when we read words like through his blood, we so often think, yeah, 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 the blood of Jesus. I've heard about the blood of Jesus. He had nothing but the blood of Jesus. God's only son, he died on the cross. And we want to move on to something else, but we actually need to sit and dwell on what that means. Have you ever thought, like, why should God redeem you? In redeeming you, what now do you add to God that he didn't already have that made it worth it for God to lose his one and only son? What addition did you bring into the kingdom that the subtraction of Jesus's life made it worth it? What gain and profit did you bring to God that made it worth losing his one and only son? I just think about it like this in the most simplest of scenarios. Imagine you have a smartphone. Everyone has a smartphone these days. So imagine, you know, a few years ago you bought a smartphone. It was $500. It's quite a lot of money. It's like half a smartphone now. But, uh, you know, you $500, you buy a smartphone. And four years has passed. The glass is shattered. It doesn't hold its charge. And it's laggy. It's time for a new phone. But one day you're at a park, you're with your kids, you're with your dog, you lose the phone. And a stranger finds the phone, somehow gets in contact with you, but they're not a very nice person. So they say to you, I'll give you your phone back. You can redeem your phone. It'll cost you $500. Now, that is exactly how much you paid for the phone in the first place. How many of you would pay $500 to get that phone back? Some of you are going, well, I have lots of pictures, lots of texts, you know, lots of uh, security information. Well, okay, what if all of your photos, your messages, your notes were on the cloud? Everything password protected, you know, it's, it's tied to your face now. And so, you know, that's not going to get stolen. So all of that is secure. How many of you would go ahead and pay, redeem, pay the ransom for your phone to get it back? And I would venture to guess that not many of you would. You would simply say, sir, please responsibly recycle that phone when you're done with it. And then you'd go and you take that money and you'd go buy something else. Why? What reasonable explanation would there be to redeem something broken at such a high cost? And the answer would be, of course, nothing about the phone. The phone can be replaced. A better one, an upgraded one can be uh, received. The only reason that you would make such a sacrifice to redeem such a broken thing is if that desire was in your heart. It wouldn't be anything about the phone. It would be something in you. That's what verse 7 is saying. When it's saying redemption comes through Christ's blood, it's nothing about you. 
and the worth you bring to God that makes him go, oh, I really want to redeem that person. But it's something about the heart of God, overflowing and abundant in grace and mercy that would make him desire you. In fact, if God were to actually look at you and see what was in your heart that wouldn't make you more adorable to him, it would actually make him more repelled to you. Because what is in our hearts? Paul goes on to say this. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood. But then he says this, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, what's that about? And what Paul is saying here is, I want you to get the picture right. When God redeemed you, he didn't redeem you as um, innocent, righteous saints, but he redeemed you as sinners and guilty lawbreakers. That when he redeemed you, he didn't redeem you because of all of your good works. He redeemed you despite the presence of all of your bad works. That redemption required then forgiveness because there was so much sin already in us. And it's an interesting thing to think about because we are so aware of that. How many times have you ever committed a sin, did something, and then thought to yourself, man, I'm so unworthy. How could God love me? And you beat yourself up. You hear the accusations, not just of the evil one, not just of the world, but the accusations you level against yourself. And you think, man, I'm not worth it. God can do better than me. And to that, God seems to say this. You know, you're absolutely right. No arguing here. But... When by grace I sent my son to redeem and to forgive you by his blood, I put on each of you the worth and the value of his own life. You are now as precious to me as my one and only son is. You see, like, dear friends, you, you got to understand, you and I are in a far worse condition than an old, laggy, broken phone that can't hold its charge. We were enslaved sinners wanting nothing to do with God, wanting, in fact, to be our own God wanting nothing to do with holiness and everything to do with our personal happiness. But God looked at you and said, not because of anything you've done, not because of any effort I see in you, not because of any potential I witness in you, not based on any condition of good works or good effort that you bring, but by grace alone, I want you to be mine. I'll ransom you. I'll redeem you, even at the cost of my own son's precious blood. This, in short, is what the Christian gospel is. Good news. A message of grace. Now, Apostle Paul wants us to understand not just the wonderful nature of the gift that God has given us. Paul, Apostle Paul wants us to see beyond the gift and actually look at the surpassing beauty of the giver. So he actually redirects our attention. Verse 7 reads in full like this. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And that little, little line there, a little clause tacked in at the end, what Paul is doing is he's subtly changing and shifting the focus away from the nature of this gracious redemption. Oh, we have such a wonderful redemption. And he's actually saying, no, what I want you to pivot and look at instead is the graciousness of the Redeemer. There's a big difference there between the redemption that we have and the Redeemer who offers himself to us. You know, like 
Christmas season is right around the corner. I, I sense it now. You go to a store, you're already seeing Christmas displays. Neighbors are already in my neighborhood putting up lights. I'm already hearing some of the, you know, the trickling of the, the Christmas music. And Christmas is a season of gift giving and gift receiving. But there are two different types of people. There are those who receive gifts and they love the gifts. And so they'll say, this gift is perfect. I love it so much. They love the gift. But there are others who receive a gift and they'll say this. The thought behind this gift was so perfect. Thank you so much. There's a big difference there, isn't there? One is thanking you for the gift. One is thanking the gift, praising the gift. The other is thanking the giver, praising the giver. Paul is putting his energy not into just describing the gift, the nature of redemption, but the giver. And that's why he says that little phrase, according to the riches of his grace. What he means is this, that God has redeemed you and he's forgiven you according to, in proportion to, how rich he is in grace. And accordance, according to the riches of his grace is very different than saying God redeemed us out of the riches of his grace. It's very different. Ken Hughes uh, explains the difference with this illustration. He says, uh, you may be familiar with John D. Rockefeller. At the end of the 20th century, he was like the richest man in the world. And there's this really famous picture. You know, it's back in the day. It's all in black and white. And, and John D. Rockefeller, he's, he's an older gentleman. He has his, his top hat on. He has a waistcoat. And he's bending over and he's handing a single coin into a, uh, the hands of, a, of an impoverished little child, a little boy, a poor boy. And in that, you know, picture was kind of uh, made really famous and showing, oh, isn't Rockefeller generous and gracious? He didn't need to give anything, and yet he did. And so, yes, he's generous and gracious in his giving and giving that single coin he gave out of his many riches. Yes, it was given out of his many riches, but we could not say his gift was given in accordance with his riches. Because that small, singular gift didn't reflect nearly how rich Rockefeller actually was. Why? Because a much, 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 much poorer man could give the same gift. It's very different to say you're giving out of your riches. It's another thing to say you're giving in accordance with your riches. Which did God do? When you look at the nature of what God gave, did he give out of his riches or in proportion to the riches of his grace? He gave according to the riches of his grace because he gave us his son. He gave us his everything. Jesus, the one from whom, for whom God opened up the heavens, sent his spirit like a dove, and then declared to the listening and watching world, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's who God gave for you a gift in accordance with the riches of his grace. God is not just rich in grace then. The good news goes beyond that because the Bible will say God is also generous with his grace. If you look at verse 7, Paul writes this at the end going into verse 8. He says, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. The word lavish can literally be translated as something like he abundantly gave us or he gave us more than we needed. And Paul uses this word to uh, convey the extravagance of God's grace, how much God was willing and glad to shower upon us. 
you know, I've been trying to cook more these days following recipes and recipes are really confusing because the instructions are always so vague. Uh, sometimes when you're baking, the instructions are very precise, but sometimes I watch a YouTube video and it'll say, oh, uh, take a pinch of salt. How much is a pinch of salt? Like my pinch is bigger than your pinch. So do we go with my pinch or your pinch? Which pinch are we going with? Sometimes they'll say, oh, what you do is uh, pour a generous amount of buddy, butter. Like how generous the whole thing? Like generous for me is a whole stick. Is it half a stick? Is it one stick? What, what is generous? And, and so many times we get frustrated. Like we want to know how much is something. And so God is generous in grace. He lavished grace. Well, how much grace? And we often ask that question because we want to know What's the measure of God's grace? Can I exhaust God's grace? Can I run God's grace dry? Will there be a limited amount of God's grace? Is, there, is it like an ATM where I can only uh, draw out X amount of grace per day? But when Paul uses this word, lavished his grace, he does it intentionally because his point is this. God gave you more grace than you could ever possibly need or even dream of. You want to know how much grace? Think of how much grace you need and infinitely more than that. That's what he's lavished upon you. That's the kind of God we have. God who's not only rich in grace, but then generous to share it, generous to pour it out, generous to give it. He's not stingy. When I was younger in college, the poor man would always go and eat at Chipotle. Try to take, you know, one Chipotle bowl and stretch it to like three meals. You'd go and say, can I get rice? And they pour rice. And you're like, a little more rice. And they pour a little more rice. And then uh, do you want black or, you know, pinto beans? And you're like, oh, can I get both? Right? And, you're, and you're sitting there and you're watching them pour it on, right? And what are you watching for? You want them to be lavish with it. You want them to be stingy with it. I don't know, like people who take guac and they put it in and there's still guac on the spoon and you're just like, put the rest in. But they slowly, you know, wipe off. So you guys know what I'm talking about. And we sit there, we're like, we want a lavishness and yet we're confronted with such stinginess. But you look at the heart of God and he has lavished grace upon grace. There's no stinginess in the heart of God. If this is true, dear friends, and it is true, let me exhort you in three ways. The first is this. If God is rich in grace, take your biggest failures and darkest secrets to him because he won't run away. There are no sins that you can bring to God that are so big that will overwhelm him and that will overcome him. There, is, there are no chains too thick nor lies too deep, no addictions too strong nor sins too habitual, no acts so immoral or thoughts so troubling that God cannot redeem you from them and will not forgive you for them. You simply cannot bankrupt God who is rich in grace. So you go to him in your need with the burdens of your guilt, the weight of your shame, and all of condemnation that you feel upon you. You go to him and you will find that his storehouse is full and rich enough to meet you. The second thing is this. If God is generous with grace, regularly ask to receive what he loves to give because he won't withhold. And just as there is no magnitude of sin that's too great for God, there is no multitude of sin that is too many for God. There's nothing hidden in the fine print of your redemption that limits your access to God's grace 
and there's nothing in his generous heart that would refuse those who humbly ask. God never gives just a pinch of his grace, even if all you've asked for is a pinch. God only gives in bulk. He only gives generously and lavishly. So come to him boldly. Come to him often. Here's the third thing. If God is rich in grace and generous with grace to you, show grace to those you consider undeserving. What Paul tells us is that we were redeemed and forgiven. He reminds us that grace is not just for the deserving saint, it's for the undeserving sinner. And if I identify as an undeserving sinner who has received God's rich and generous grace, then how am I reflecting that and showing that to others, especially those who do not deserve it? Now, it's one thing as God is calling you to be gracious toward, toward others out of your own grace. Well, then you're in trouble. That's finite and that's limited. But God is calling you to be gracious to others with the grace that he has shown you. When God has poured out his grace, there is an abundance. You take enough for yourself and there's still an ocean full of grace. And you're called to then extend that. So who in your life do you need to show grace to? Exhibit patience toward, withhold judgment from, extend forgiveness to, show compassion, show compassion with. You know, to know God who, who is rich and generous with grace allows you then to, to live in these gospel realities. My encouragement, dear friends, would be that you go to him. And in going to him, you receive all the grace you need to then be grace dispensers to the world who is dying and in need of knowing this gracious God. Let's pray.